in between filling in the cracks is those that are on the run because they realize that desolation sound is really in a way beyond the end of the law, uh, beyond the, beyond the, the reach of the law. And so various people end up there hiding out, whether it's from the law or from responsibility or life or society or whatever. And that leads usually to a lot of uh, great stories, whether they want me to tell them or not. Hello, welcome back to the Redfern Book Review. I am your host, Amy Mayer, and today I'm joined by British Columbian author, singer, and broadcaster, Grant Lawrence, and he's here to talk about his new book, which has been sitting at the top of the BC bestsellers list for months, and it's called Return to Solitude, More Desolation Sound Adventures with the Cougar Lady, Russell the Hermit, the Spaghetti Bandit, and others. And if you're from British Columbia, undoubtedly you know him, and I have many listeners that are not from the area, so um, this will be a fun introduction for you. But um, I'll tell you just a little bit about Grant. He's currently, um, he currently is the host of CBC's Music Top 20, and he's the author of four best-selling books for adults and a couple of children's books. And he came on my radar with um, a beloved book he wrote in 2010, and this is the sequel we're going to talk about today. But that was about adventures and solitude. It was called Adventures in Solitude. Um, so with that, I just want to say welcome, Grant. Thank you very much, Amy. Thanks a lot for having me and uh, happy to be here. Thanks for the kind introduction. Uh, so what I wanted to start with, uh, I've had... We've been kind of chatting back and forth over Instagram this summer, and you haven't been super easy to get a hold of because this is your moment. Summer is where you zip around the sound, and also you've been busy promoting your book. And I wanted to ask you, um, you haven't just been filling up urban libraries or public spaces. You have a different way of promoting your book. Can you tell me, um, tell the listeners what you've been up to this summer? Yeah, I mean, first of all, I do... I do check out in a way in the summer. I go to Desolation Sound. I was finding it in the past that um, when I was doing, you know, music festivals and taking summer jobs and things like that, I was actually robbing myself of time in Desolation Sound, which is my favorite place in the world. And that's the subject of Adventures in Solitude and Return to Solitude. I, it's, both, it's both the setting and the subject matter. The people are really the subject matter, the the place is the setting, but that's where I like to be in the summer and it's really off grid and it's hard to communicate. It's hard to get a signal. The cell tower is placed very um, poorly in the middle of nowhere. So you have to like get in a boat, go out to the middle of Desolation Sound, float in the, in, in like four or 500 feet depth of water and pick up your signal. And then you can, communicate with people, but oh, I didn't know that. <laughs> yeah. So it's, it's challenging to, to pull off communication, but that's also a good thing. 
yeah. um, because it's nice to just check out. But the shows that you're referring to, I've been a published author, as you mentioned, for 12 years now. And in the first several years, I would pretty much, I mean, I would do, I'd read anywhere. I'd read at a garage door opening. I mean, I would do library gigs. I'd be in the back corner of bookstores. I'd be, you know, anywhere and everywhere they would have me. And then I kind of had an epiphany. It took a while. It took a long time, but I had an epiphany after about seven years of doing this, this type of book promotion that I was before being an author, I was a touring musician and we would never do free shows. We would, we would do paid gigs, you know, you five bucks at the door, whatever, 20 bucks at the door, depending on what year it was. And I thought to myself, well, maybe I should be putting on a show instead of a reading in the corner of a cafe or something like that. Maybe I should have more showbiz elements because that's the world that I come from. And Stuart McLean, who's one of my great mentors and friends and a great CBC host from Final Cafe, had very sadly passed away. And he did a touring show where he did stories. He read the stories and had favorite musicians play the shows, one of which was my wife, Jill Barber, many times. And so I thought, well, maybe I could do like a West Coast kind of almost like a tribute or a version of what Stuart McLean did nationally. And so I started doing these types of shows before COVID, very gingerly started out. I remember the first one was on Bowen Island. Uh, Dustin Bentall actually had a big role, a musician, big role in convincing me to do it. And it worked. The show sold out. And we and my publisher said it would never work. But my publisher has been telling me various things that won't work for many, many years. <laughs> as much as I love them, they can sometimes be a little negative. They said that nobody is going to, they said the purpose of doing a book reading is to sell books. Um, no one's going to buy a ticket and buy a book. But I thought, well, when I go see, when I used to go see Stuart McLean, they, everybody would buy a $50 ticket and then they all line up at the end and buy a book because they liked what they saw. It's just like buying a t-shirt at a concert or a record at a concert. So I thought it would work. And sure enough, the first show on Bowen Island back in ugh, 2017 or something like that sold out and uh, a small theater, which is what I like. And then from then on, we've just had this really great run. Now, of course, we've had the, 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 the pause, the COVID pause, but we, we, and when I say we, it's because I work with musicians and we kind of have like a little touring, uh, like, a, like a tour group in a way. I've got a revolving cast of musicians, my wife being one of them. And uh, yeah, we go around the province and my kind of rule of thumb is I like islands and resort towns because I'm old now. You know, I don't want to be in some <laughs> crappy downtown bar or something like that. I want to be in a nice place. I want to go see nice places. Um, if I'm going to go, if I'm going to leave the kids or whatever, I'm going to leave home. I want to go to a nice place. So that's the concept. And uh, it's been a, a real joy. It's been uh, and and just I mean, I don't know when this is going to when this is going this podcast is going to drop. But, 
you know, in September when we're talking, I'm about to do two shows, uh, Salt Spring and Harrison Hot Springs this weekend. And then uh, later in September, Gabriola and Galliano. So uh, those types of shows with community halls, small theaters, that sort of thing. And it's just a lot of fun. Now, can you tell people um, who pretend someone doesn't know about Desolation Sound, can you describe it to people? And, For and sure. describe it. describe it now, but also I want you to describe it the first time you saw it, because when you saw it in the 70s for the first time, it was a very different place. So Yeah, I was, uh, I'll, I'll describe this in a couple of ways. Um, first of all, what you have to picture is British Columbia has a very, very complicated coastline. It's one of the most complicated coastlines in the world. And when I say compl- complicated, I mean it's jagged. There's lots of ins and outs. There's lots of little inlets. There's lots of huge deep inlets. There's lots and lots and lots of coastal islands, and it creates a real web uh, of, of ocean passageways. And so if you've ever been to Tofino, a lot of people have been to Tofino on Vancouver Island. Beyond Tofino, beyond the end of that road, across the ocean is Clackwatt Sound which is a collection of inlets and islands. Tons of people have been to Tofino. Very few people have made the crossing to Clackwatt Sound, though, of course, it's totally worth it. Lund, British Columbia, which is the very end of the Sunshine Coast, the end of Pacific Coast Highway 101 that stretches from Lund all the way down to Chile. It goes right through downtown San Francisco and L.A., Beyond Lund, if you get in a boat and go out into the wild blue yonder, that's Desolation Sound. So Desolation Sound is a saltwater, oceanic paradise of mountains and inlets and islands and passageways where my father uh, decided to build a family cabin way back. He, As you mentioned, he bought it in the 70s, built the cabin right around the early 80s, and we've been there ever since. And I was a little kid when we first found Desolation Sound, when my my dad first came across it. And to me, it was not the place that that I wanted to be. It was total wilderness, and it looked dangerous. It was either forests and cliff or ocean, and there didn't seem to be any in-between. You know, and at Savory Island, you've got your forest, and you've got a beautiful white sand beach, then you've got the ocean. There was no in-between. It was just trees, cliff, ocean. And so that was a bit tough for a six-year-old kid. And the other bit of trauma that I experienced back then was my dad would fly a seaplane. He had, he had his pilot's license. And uh, he had this horrible bucket of bolts, piece of crap seaplane, like a beater of a plane. You don't really want your planes to be beaters. You know, maybe your car, fine maybe a boat, not a plane. My dad's plane was a piece of junk. And I remember when I was six years old, I still, between vomiting on the inside of the windshield, I have this memory of looking over and it was a deafening seaplane because the engine was right in between me and my dad. It would stick out uh, into the cockpit. And I, I remember my dad would tip the wings back and forth so he could see out the window a desolation sound below, and that would make me even sicker. 
And, but I remember when he tipped it over to my side so I could look down, I looked out the window, but right below the window, I could see the kind of um, the door, the metal door of the plane. And the door was rattling so hard that I could see screws um, loosening with the vibration in real time, (laughs) like screws that in theory hold the plane together. So those are some of my earliest uh, memories of, uh, of desolation sound. Now, um, you mentioned in your, your, the sequel that you've written, you talk about your daughter, Gracie, getting mm-hmm. sick on the um, highway going up to Desolation Sound. And you talk about it almost like, you know, the first time she's riding a bike or something like that and has fallen off the biker. And I, and I thought that was really interesting because you, you talk about this transition that you made in your own life where this was kind of the last place you want to go. And now it's the very place you want to go. And when did you make that transition? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. I mean, so I've been, I've been through a few sort of love, hate ups and downs with desolation sounds. So when I was that six year old boy, I was really thinking like, what fresh hell is this? My dad was very adventurous, um, would always drag our family to wilderness locations and I was a nervous, nerdy little kid and, and really wasn't into it. Um, but then as I got a little bit older, eight, nine, 10, I did get into it because we were there so much. And there was a hermit who lived beside us who ended up becoming quite a good friend and quite a, quite a mentor for me because he was so different than my dad. He lived in the wilderness. He smoked pot. He drank. None of these, what my dad did. Uh, and so... I was into it then, but then when I turned into a teenager, a rebellious teenager, uh, and really got into music, I wanted nothing to do with the cabin or the wilderness and wanted to be in the city with my friends. And I formed a band and eventually spent the next 20 years in downtown cities all over the world. But then once the band retired or at least started slowing down, I realized that I my family still had this retreat. I was so fortunate and privileged to, to still have this retreat. And I thought, well, maybe it'd be worth going back up there and checking it out. Nothing had changed, still spectacular, still beautiful. And I basically fell in love with it hard uh, as an adult. And um, you can't drag me away from the place now. And, uh, and so those, that was sort of my roller coaster. And then I, I, but I realized that there are rites of passages. And so getting there, whether it was by air or by car, when I was a kid, just equaled vomit. Like whether, you know, throwing up in the seaplane or throwing up in the car on the very, very windy Sunshine Coast Highway. Because as I mentioned earlier, complicated coastline. When you have a complicated coastline like ours, you get a curvy road that has to follow up that coastline and go around all those bays and inlets and coves. You know, you got Oregon, the road's straight as an arrow, not so much in BC. And so those curvy roads would also destroy my stomach and I would puke all over my mom, puke all over the back seat, puke everywhere. And uh, I didn't really think of that as a, rite of passage or a generational thing until I had my own kids strapping them into the back seat. And yes, as you allude to my 
if, if you could ever, it's very strange to have a nostalgic feeling for vomit. But uh, when my when my daughter vomits now, I, I say it in the present tense because she's still doing it. And we fishtail into uh, the Earl's Cove Ferry Terminal and we do the Earl's Cove Ferry Terminal walk of shame past all the other cars, uh, you know, with, with my daughter covered in throw up to the washroom at the front of the ferry lineup, I realized like, wow, this is like a family tradition that's spanned generations. This is amazing. So yeah, that, these are the sorts of things that you realize. My wife is, is not quite as, um, as warm and fuzzy about these memories as I am. <laughs> um, okay. So that kind of, I wanted to ask you, you, um, mentioned the hermit and that's mm-hmm. Russell, right? Is that yeah, right? that's right. Russell, Russell the hermit. So I want to talk about the kind of people that are attracted to this place. And, uh, first of all, does everybody up there have a nickname or it's, Um, (laughs) I pretty much, and I recognized that early on, um, because I don't know if it is because people don't remember each other's last names or they meet in passing and they need some sort of shorthand to remember who everybody is. But, you know, back in the pioneer era, when I was doing research for the first book, I would realize that everyone was like, you know, uh, everyone was like, you know, Marcel was nicknamed Frenchie or it was all based on nationality or background. Or there was, um, you know, uh, Tommy the Greek or there was uh, Sven the Swede. You know, there was all these sort of wherever they came from were the nicknames. And then and then some of them started getting nicknames for the practices that they they did. Uh, for instance, the cougar lady was nicknamed the cougar lady because she killed a lot of cougars that tormented and hunted and stalked her livestock. And then Russell, the hermit obviously was the hermit of desolation sound. And so, yeah, these, these nicknames are kind of like beyond the end of the road shorthand, Uh, you know, and they still exist to this day. I mean, the guy who collects the garbage, the one garbage collection that we have in Desolation Sound is in a wonderful place called Refuge Cove. And the guy who collects the garbage is known as Garbage Dave. <laughs> and, and not the, you know, most wonderful nickname. I wouldn't want it on a, you know, an epitaph or anything, but that's how he's known. And people, it just rolls off the tongue. So yeah, it's, you know, there's Pack Rat Mike and there's Prawn Bob and there's, Karen the mayor and there's Handy Candy and St. Gee and uh, all sorts of uh, all sorts of nicknames up there for sure. It's like Sesame Street or something like yeah, that. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, I don't think I have one, or at least I don't know about it. Um, they might have one uh, that maybe <laughs> is not that they don't want to reach my ears. So it it's safe to say that either you're looking to get away if you're going up there, looking for something new, or possibly you're hiding out from something. That's also a thing, right? Like, there's Yeah, that, you know, the, the reasons why, I mean, the, the first of all, the, the area for many, many hundreds and thousands, hundreds and also thousands of years was the, and, and still is the territory of the Klahus, 
the Talaman and the Homolko First Nations, and they would use the area for uh, for clam gardens and for winter camps and uh, all. Uh, and there was villages everywhere, and there's still middens everywhere. And when the pioneer age happened, people were tempted by what was advertised as, you know, virgin farmland. But when they would get there, they realized it was actually a very, very difficult area to farm because a lot of it is hard granite bedrock. Some people pulled it off. Some people didn't. And then the next big wave of immigration after the pioneers was the back to the landers and the hippies of the 60s and 70s. And a lot of them were on the run. You know, they were running from politics. They were running from the draft. They were running from the rat race, looking for a new uh, start. That was that whole back to the land movement. And it's sort of happening again right now in Canada and driven mostly by economics and real estate, which is interesting to see. But uh, really... Then there was the cottagers. After the Back to the Landers, cottagers and vacationers started coming in in the 80s. And in between, filling in the cracks, is those that are on the run because they realize that Desolation Sound is really, in a way, beyond the end of the law, uh, beyond, the, beyond the, the reach of the law. And so various people end up there hiding out, whether it's from the law or from responsibility, or life, or society, or whatever. And that leads usually to a lot of uh, great stories, whether they want me to tell them or not. <laughs> um, I was in Desolation Sound a few years ago, and I'm curious, maybe you even know this person, but I was on Cortez at the pub there, and this young woman comes up to the table, and she she reminded me of Tinkerbell. She had a haircut, like, like a pixie haircut. She was dancing around and she comes up to the table and she goes, hello. And has this very pronounced kind of British, um, Londoner accent. And so I asked her, I was like, Oh, where are you from? Cause I'm thinking she's studying or has a work visa. She's like, I'm from here. And I was like, hmm. what? Anyway, she, she said her mother was, was English. And so she has adopted this accent. I just, it was so eccentric and it was just interesting. And, um, yeah. I'm not sure of the um, <laughs> eccentric British pixie that you speak of on Cortez. <laughs> the only, I'm not sure where you were on Cortez. Were you in Gorge Harbor? Yes. Yeah. So usually I'm on the other side of Cortez at Squirrel Cove, which is kind of the entrance to Desolation Sound from Cortez. But um no, but I'll keep my eye out for her. <laughs> um, well, why don't you why don't you do a reading for us? Sure. Let me just oh. take a sip of water. Okay. So I'm going to read from the book. Um, I'm going to read from the section about a dear friend of mine who's no longer around, named Bernard the German, and he was a huge. He was known as the giant of Desolation Sound. And he uh, was a very gruff man. He was born in Germany right after World War II. And so he bore the brunt of uh, the guilt of that nation. 
uh, after World War II, even though those that were born, you know, they had obviously nothing to do with it. They, and so, but um, he did have a chip on his shoulder because when he came to Canada, he faced abuse for being German. And so he had a kind of love-hate relationship with his German heritage. Uh, and sometimes he wore it very proudly. Sometimes he had to hide it. But uh, he was a total character, and he was a very, very large man, well over six feet tall. And uh, his favorite summer outfit was fairly European. In the uh, very warm, hot summer days of Desolation Sound, Bernard the German loved to wear a purple Speedo and a white bucket hat and nothing else. (laughs) And And during the summers, he would often look after his granddaughter, Bernadine. So I am going to read a story about uh, one summer afternoon when Bernard was looking after his granddaughter. One afternoon, the friendly lawyer... Sorry, I'll start that again. One afternoon, the friendly lawyer, Daryl, wanted to treat his wife, Anita, to an outing up to Stewart Island for her birthday. And so they arranged for their young daughter, Melissa, to be babysat by Bernard. And she could play with the granddaughter, Bernadine. So Daryl and Anita thought that both Bernard and his wife, Patricia, would be there to look after the children together. But when they dropped off their daughter, only Bernard the German greeted them from the rocks in his purple Speedo. (laughs) Bernard, where is Patricia? Oh, my wife is out hiking with Handy Candy and she won't be back till dinner. But don't worry, I'll look after the kids, yelled Bernard. It wasn't exactly what our neighbors, Daryl and Anita, were expecting. But Bernard had plenty of experience with kids. He had raised two daughters of his own and he looked after his granddaughter for much of the summer So Daryl and Anita dropped off their daughter and they headed out of the inlet in their boat. It was a beautiful summer day. So the girls, then age eight and 10, donned their swimsuits to dive off the rocks. Bernard semi-watched from a deck chair and cracked a fresh beer up at his cabin. He was just about to take his first sip when he heard screams from the shoreline below. He jumped out of his deck chair and spilt beer all over himself and pounded down his rock staircase to find the young girls hopping about on shore, waving their arms and rubbing their legs and yelling in pain. When he calmed them down enough for an explanation, he found out that they had spotted a dreaded red jellyfish floating near them. They initially thought the jellyfish was dead, So they poked it with a stick and swished it around in the water. Unfortunately, unlike the much more common and harmless white moon jellyfish found throughout Desolation Sound, the elusive, much larger lion's mane jellyfish, which is bright red, can give you a nasty sting whether the jelly is alive or dead, especially when its long, stringy tentacles, which can stretch out for several meters, come in contact with your skin. The jellyfish that the kids had played with was still alive, 
the girls had unwittingly swum through its tentacles <gasps> and their legs were in burning discomfort. Bernard stood there towering over them, contemplating what to do. Then he remembered a remedy for jellyfish stings that Hugh the oyster farmer had told him about a while back. Urine, human urine. As the girls writhed in pain, Bernard considered his options. Should he whip out his wiener schnitzel and urinate on the girls? Would Daryl and Anita mind? Would the girls stand still if he peed on them? Or would he have to chase them around? Would he have enough urine for both of them? Or would the remedy be worse than the sting? Please, Opa, make it stop, shrieked Bernadine, his granddaughter. And so Bernard slowly reached down for the waistband of his Speedo when suddenly he heard laughter and conversation floating across the blue water of the bay. A flotilla of kayaks filled with tourists was rounding Selena Point, following the coastline toward them. You can see a lot of strange things in Desolation Sound, but Bernard figured that peeing on children shouldn't be one of them. Instead, he hustled the girls up the stairs and into the cabin where he rinsed the affected areas with cool water. Then he gave both of them some Benadryl. Within a few minutes, the girls were asleep on the couch and seemed none worse for wear. Bernard, the babysitter, went back out on the deck and settled into his chair. Now, where was I? Oh, yeah. He cracked a fresh beer. What he didn't know at the time was that vinegar works just as well as urine on jellyfish stings. Oh, my God. There you go. That's a true story. What year would that have been? I have no idea. 2005, maybe? Because that seems very 1970s. Like, yeah, well, someone would be sort of half watching and half like... Yeah, he, he wasn't that, um, you know, by, by, by the time kids are eight and 10 years old in Desolation Sound, they're, they're pretty much on their own. I mean, we, <laughs> we do not helicopter parent our nine-year-old. He's allowed down to the dock on his own. He's allowed to swim and stuff like that. But we make sure he's wearing a flotation device and we're around, but we're not like right over top. <coughs> I'm sure they will be very grateful for that later. Yeah. Our six-year-old daughter, a little different. We're a little bit more on her. Um, okay. So another question I wanted to ask you, this book really, I, I think the difference in this book, you have a, many of the same people or I call them characters, but this is through the eyes now of being a father and um, a husband. So how has everything changed for you? Uh, we talked about it a little bit earlier with your, mm -hmm. your daughter and some of the memories that, you know, they're sweeter now, but also how is, how has it changed for you? And, and what was, I should ask, I should start by asking what was Jill's first reaction when she realized that she wasn't just marrying you? <laughs> She's awesome. Yeah. I mean, I think Jill is still coming to terms with that, <laughs> uh, that she married both me and a place. And, um, you know, she, she can only, I, I can handle a lot more of the cabin than, than she can to her credit. 
She did do an entire month there in July. She's a little bit more of an urbanite than I am, or at least I am now. So that, but she does, she has embraced it. She has no choice. Uh, I think um, if we want to remain married, that was kind of a, you know, a, a deal breaker right at the very beginning that I let her know about is that this cabin is near and dear and very, very important to me. Um, but the, and you know, so those are all changes. I mean, when I rediscovered the cabin after my band wound down, I was quite single. I had been single for a while. And so there really was a lot of solitude up there. You know, it was just me. It was very contemplative. My parents weren't coming up as much anymore. Uh, it, it was, I had a lot of alone time up there. And that's when I started meeting the characters and all the neighbors. And, uh, and things have definitely changed now because I often have my wife and two little kids with me, which is great. They're growing to love it too. You know, I mean, they did the month with me in July, but on Labor Day weekend, I will say that none of them came with me. They had all, <laughs> they, they had all figured they had done their time at the cabin. I wanted to go up again. It was a glorious weekend. And, um, but they were like, no, no, we're, we're done. We want to play with our friends down in the city. And, and uh, that's fine. Um, I'm, I have no problem returning to solitude on my own. Um, I wanted to conclude by asking you, what do people on Savory Island think of you? Well, that's a great question. Um, <laughs> I've written a lot about Savory Island as a kind of juxtaposition to Desolation Sound. Yes. Like I mentioned it earlier that Savory Island is the beautiful white sand beaches. And it's just, oh my goodness, it's just so, so much of an easier place. Um, you know, Desolation Sound, barnacles, seaweed, cliffs, currents, uh, and uh, over on Savory, everything's sand. I mean, it's gorgeous. you can go up to the top of the hillside where there's 100-foot fir trees and it's still sand, you know. I mean, it's a giant sandbar and kids can ride their bikes everywhere or walk barefoot everywhere. And there's a general store and it's just a kind of an idyllic summer setting. And Desolation Sound is also idyllic and very Mediterranean and very, very beautiful, but it's a rough place. It's, it, you, can, you can scratch yourself up pretty quickly if, you don't, if you're not wearing the right footwear or the right gear. Um, so to answer your question, for whatever reason, even though I tease savory and savory people all the time, for being incredibly good looking and, you know, like Abercrombie and Fitch had come to life and various other descriptions. Uh, I did an event on Savory in the summer. Um, Jill and I did one. I, I did the readings and Jill and a couple of other musicians played songs. And of all the events that I have done around the province this year for Return to Solitude, all the shows, the savory one sold out the fastest by far. It sold out in a day, two days, maybe completely sold out. I mean, both the promoter and I could not believe it. We were both kind of shocked. And so I was, I was a little bit nervous booking the savory show, but clearly 
they're they're into it. They don't mind the teasing. Um, okay, with that, I wanted to thank you so much for joining me today. That was so much fun. Okay, thank you very much, Amy. It was a pleasure being your guest and thanks for having me on. Thank you. Thanks so much to Grant for coming on the podcast. That was a lot of fun. And I particularly liked um, his reading about um, Bernard the German. Anyway, I also want to let you know that on social media, on Facebook, and on Instagram, I'm going to be giving away a signed copy of Return to Solitude uh, to local listeners. So check it out there. You can find me at Redfern Book Review on both Facebook and Instagram. So thanks so much for tuning in.